In the gap between Marvel's 2019 Uncanny X-Men number 22 and the start of the Jonathan Hickman-led era with House of X number 1, there's an in-universe time jump forward of six months. Over the course of House of X and the Dawn of X, we've seen a smattering of flashbacks filling in details from this time period, but many questions remain. The biggest, of course, being just what exactly happened during these six months that we haven't seen yet. Today I'll answer, what's the Age of X-Man mystery that still matters for Hickman's X-Men? How did Professor X get from Astonishing X-Men to House of X? And what's the legacy and relevance of the Matthew Rosenberg-written Uncanny X-Men? Hey everybody, I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com, and today we're talking about the Hickman X-Men time gap six months later. If you like CBH YouTube channel or podcast, please consider liking, subscribing, and sharing. Links to Comic Book Herald channels and Patreon support are included in the show notes. You can find full X-Men and comic reading orders at ComicBookHerald.com. Spoilers for discussed comics may follow. While House of X and Powers of Ten do sparingly reveal essential details, examples include Emma Frost's recruitment and Hellfire Company, Professor X's financial portfolio and pharmaceutical reach, and that time Professor X and Magneto took vacay to Bar Sinister, there's still plenty we haven't seen, and a fair amount of mystery generated by that fact. Certainly, I don't have secret answers to the exact details, but what I can do is lay out the questions and hanging threads that exist, examine what we do know to be true, and then engage in reckless and unsound speculation about what's to come in the world of X-Men. That's what I do. In Age of X-Men, general consensus around the event is that it's a stopgap event in the X-Line holding down the publication calendar until Hickman, LaRoz, and Silva kicked off House and Powers. Whereas Marvel Comics payoff tend to read in sequence as part of this never-ending shared universe story, most readers would pretty confidently say you don't need to read Age of X-Men to get to House of X. I'd mostly agree, save the potential and implications of the event's conclusion. Spilling out of the pages of the comically short-lived 2018 Uncanny X-Men relaunch, Age of X-Men is the story of an attempted mutant utopia created by Nate Gray, codename X-Man, the alternate reality cable from the Age of Apocalypse timeline. Nate warps like 99% of mutants to this world where mutants have ascended to generally peaceful power, the marvelous X-Men here function more or less as the world's Avengers. Although inevitably it all comes undone when the X-Men's memories start returning and it's revealed that Nate's using secret police to enforce his rule. This is really classic alternate Marvel reality stuff. If you really want to experience this event, I'd recommend checking out the Alpha and Omega issues and the Leia Williams written Extremist, which is quite good. There are a few interesting components to the world's collapse. The first is in the semantics of Nate's creation, as he tells the X-Men his world isn't merely some alternate reality, but instead another plane of existence. You could argue this is just comic book mumbo-jumbo, the best slice of mumbo-jumbo this side of Banjo-Kazooie, but it's exactly the sort of thing that takes on new meaning in the wake of House of X number 2 and the lifelines of Moira X. One question I've wondered is how to define the lifelines of Myra. Are they alternate realities? Are they futures that may yet come to pass? Nate's Age of X-Man offers another alternative, planes of existence, perhaps more in line with Doctor Strange's separate realities than the X-Men customarily deal with. The most ominous teaser from Age of X-Men comes in the Omega issue's final pages, with Magneto and Nate coming to a secret agreement to keep the plane of existence alive and to somehow separate Magneto into two versions. He returns to Earth-616 in time for House of X monologues, but also retains an Age of X-Men version. Nate asks Magneto, what are you willing to sacrifice? And the scene ends. Everything is House of X. Admittedly, this could go down as one of the many forgotten teases in Marvel history, but it actually seems a bit unlikely to me. The arrival of Hickman's X-Men is well known with it, or was well known with the Marvel editorial for years, and writer Zach Thompson and Lottie Naylor would have had at least some awareness. So the question, of course, is what are they planning there? 
Some CBH commenters have posited that this ties Nate and Age of X-Men Magneto to the rise of Krakoa. To me, though, the question of Magneto's sacrifice would mean either the death of his dream of mutant superiority or removing the gifts that make him special. On the surface, Krakoa kind of requires some sacrifice from Magneto. He has to play along with Charlie and Moira rather than build his Magneto war and, you know, violent mutant supremacy, but dig deeper and it's really just the methods that have changed, not the means. In X-Men number 4, we see Magneto admitting exactly this. So if Krakoa is a sacrifice for Magneto, there has to be another shoe to drop. I have two theories there. One, Moira's dark scheme to blend all mutants together to rival post-human developments. Would Magneto sacrifice himself so that mutant kind wins, as some sort of, again, merged mutant hybrid? Second theory, a Krakoa that evolves into a top 10 style, everyone's a mutant world. We've already seen in X-Men number 7 the idea of mutants asking to be resurrected with Magneto's Omega level power set. What if this comes to fruition? What does that make the true master of magnetism? I don't think it's inconceivable, then, that the teaser does suggest some Age of X-Men influence in the rise of Krakoa. The other option, though, is that their story is yet to be told, and we'll be seeing more of Nate and Age of X-Men Magneto in a future storyline. Which brings us to The Astonishing X-Men. One of the most discussed unseen changes in House of X is the return of Professor X to his own body, or a version. After kind of bizarrely inhabiting the body of Phantom X during the Charles Soule written run of Astonishing X-Men, while the how was explained via Krakoan resurrection protocols, the specifics remain left to the imagination. There's also the question of the impact the events of Astonishing X-Men have had on the good professor. I could very easily see an all-flashback, all-Xavier issue of X-Men in the future, and I very much look forward to it, but until then, this is what we know. Following his death by a phoenix-possessed Cyclops in Avengers vs. X-Men in 2012, Charles Xavier's psychic essence was imprisoned in the astral plane by longtime nemesis the Shadow King. In a wild twist of Krakoa-era X-relevance, Proteus was also under the thumb of the Shadow King on the Astral Plane during this time. Long story short, the Professor merges his consciousness into Phantom X's body to escape, and starts boldly going by X and striking sweet Captain America poses. The simplest resolution to get from Astonishing X-Men number 12 to House of X number 1, then, is via Krakoa resurrection protocols, right? Charlie moves his consciousness from Phantom X's body to a husk of one of his own, a walking model selected with the tint, of course, on the bodysuit. Except, there are a lot of questions that come along with this. The biggest one is actually directly tied to the Astonishing X-Men run. After his escape from Shadow King's realm, Proteus enacts his own typical conquest plot and is disrupted by the X-Men. His energy sh uh, is shot you know, straight up into space. Why does this matter? Well, Proteus is part of the Five. Proteus is essential to the resurrection process. So assuming he wasn't killed in Astonishing X-Men number 11, resurrecting Proteus as a member of the Five feels way too chicken or the egg, his recovery becomes an essential part of the lost man called X-Months. Before Professor X could launch Krakoa with the resurrection intact, he had to save Proteus. This must be part of what he was doing during those six months. Let's say he manages this and corrals Krakoa and the Five together alongside Moira and Magneto. At some point in this process, X either dies, forcing a resurrection, or the Professor opts in for a test run resurrecting himself into his traditional body, perhaps with sinister amplifications. This definitely violates a number of resurrection rules. The mutant's death has to be confirmed, or they have to earn death via the Crucible and Apocalypse's sword, but this is early days trial runs and the Professor is clearly above these rules as he installs the process. There's even the possibility here that he somehow saves the Phantom X husk to put the Grant Morrison creation back in his original body, although I'm not entirely sure that would be necessary as far as plot manifestations go. A major question I have through all this, though, is the presence of the Shadow King. 
Throughout Astonishing X-Men, he continually takes a hold of Professor X's thoughts, to the point that the prof enlists the future Captain Britain, Betsy Braddock, as the only X-Men member who can keep an eye on the man called X until he reannounces his presence, presumably as Krakoa is being established and we see him do, um, you know, sharing his dream with mutant kind. The Shadow King is apparently defeated at the end of Soul's run, but that's kind of the thing. That's kind of his thing. He hides, lies in wait, and strikes. He could very much still be influencing Professor X's actions, even now, as we speak. Until his whereabouts are known, this can't be ruled out. Another choice is that Amal Farouk is in fact dead, and Professor X and company are faced with a decision whether or not to resurrect the Shadow King. This is a fascinating resurrection question to me because Shadow King is the Professor's longest-running nemesis. There are at least two council members, Professor and Storm, who certainly have reason to want him nowhere near Krakoa. Farouk puts the everyone-together dream severely to the test, and we haven't yet seen reason to believe he's not on the Triumvirate's secret blacklist alongside Destiny. As we start to go through Mutant Kind and the people we haven't seen yet on Krakoa, I feel like this blacklist is growing, and it definitely seems like the sort of thing that is going to play a major role in Krakoa moving forward. Which brings us finally to Uncanny X-Men, The Run, written by Matthew Rosenberg. The first 10 issues of 2018's Uncanny X-Men were released weekly as part of a much ballyhooed by Marvel PR disassembled event that of course all built to most mutants being pulled into the Age of X-Men event. The remaining mutants, led by Cyclops and Wolverine, reconciling their differences, were left to fend for themselves under the pen of writer Rosenberg from Uncanny X-Men number 11 through Uncanny X-Men number 22. Any conversation I have about this time period has to begin with a caveat. The Matt Rosenberg and Tyler Boss graphic novel Four Kids Walk Into a Bank is one of my favorite comics of all time. It's just outside my top 50 right now, and I could easily see it moving up. I also find Rosenberg's previous X-Line work compelling, if, you know, middling. I feel compelled to state that up front because Uncanny X-Men by Rosenberg is very, very bad. It's a sadistic nightmare poem written in the key of pain. It's depressingly bad and badly depressing. Rereading the comics was a tremendous reminder why House of X in the Hickman era was so desperately needed for Marvel's X-Men. Like Age of X-Men, which, by contrast, I greatly prefer, you don't have to read Uncanny X-Men prior to House and Powers, nor would I recommend it. Still, because I care about all of you, I've done the difficult work of trudging through this empty vacuum of joylessness to figure out what parts of the state of the X-Men might actually help contextualize the six-month time gap in the world of X. This desolate era of Uncanny will be remembered, if it is remembered at all, for wanton Kala's death, and that's definitely the easiest piece to resolve given Krakoa's resurrection protocols. The likes of Strong Guy, Blindfold, Wolfsbane, Havoc, Madrox, and more all need to be resurrected following Uncanny, and with one notable exception, I believe we've seen them all. It's not just the good X-Men who get off during this run either, with shouts to the OG Marauders and even the Nasty Boys. Again, given the mystery of how resurrection actually impacts characters in terms of power augmentation, possible personality changes, and the example of sync, residual trauma, all these characters are now included among those impacted. I found this particularly interesting for Havoc, who in Hellions number 1 expressed some lingering 2014 Axis inverted personality effects, which seem like a very strange thing to carry over via resurrection. Why would that get brought forward? I That feels like a question that needs to be answered in Hellions. Most significantly, though, one of the earliest casualties of this run is Blindfold, who commits suicide after foreseeing she, quote, has no future. As Ruth puts it, my gift is seeing the future. My curse is I no longer have one. To my mind, this has to be addressed. First off, other mutant, uh, mutants on Krakoa should be asking why Ruth isn't around. Why hasn't she been resurrected? If that is in fact the case, strange as she can seem, this would stand out. Second, is her vision of no future, very sex pistols of her, seeing Moira's true plan? There's this self-fulfilling prophecy aspect of this, Moira refuses to her resurrection, so she doesn't have a future on Krakoa, but then there's also the long-term secret plan of Moira. 
Again, to keep in theme with Magneto's sacrifice, this could be something that requires mutants to literally merge together and lose their quote-unquote selves. It's also possible that Blindfold could see Moira's ultimate truth, mutants always lose, and sort of twist that into the darkness of no future. Whatever it was, though, for her to go and, and commit suicide, this tragic act, um, it definitely needs, I think, more explanation than what was given in Uncanny X-Men. Speaking of resurrections, Uncanny does also leave us with the implication that some non-deceased characters underwent resurrections during the six-month time gap. For starters, Cyclops lost an eye during UXM, during a comically hyper-violent sequence in which Hope shoots Cyclops in the head, uses Cyclops' eye blast to roast Wolverine, tries to assassinate a politician, and then gets sliced and diced by Weld on Wolvie. But when we see Cyclops in House of X, he appears patchless. Same goes for the modern Dew and Suicide Squad Scar Emma Frost sports by series end. Okay, given that, and given those changes, both those things are cosmetic, and we're operating in a universe where Forge is like 60% manufactured limbs, it wouldn't have to be Resurrection that fixed these things. But it could be, and combined with other character transformations, I'm certainly willing to believe the end of House of X number 4 and 5 isn't the first Resurrection for some of these players. Take Jean Grey, for instance. Her return in the Tom Taylor Mamadars Rar X-Men Red, my favorite comic, X-Men comic, probably from like 2015 to 2000, you know, until House of X, is very much about the power of empathy in a world of hate and division, with Jean stating, no humans and mutants, no us, and them, just us. It's a beautiful sentiment, and one that's hard to reconcile with that same strong person turning around shortly thereafter and joining an all-mutant island. Forget whether or not the aims of Krakoa are right for mutants, and consider only whether they map to the motivations Jean had only recently expressed. You can make a strong case that they do not, and wonder whether Jean was backed up to a pre-Phoenix version of herself more susceptible to the Krakoan Council's manipulations. And specifically here, of course, we're talking about Charlie X. If that's the case, and they have undergone a resurrection, it raises plenty of questions about what happened during the six-month time gap that led to the need for resurrection, as well as some pretty sinister theories about Professor X's role in the development of Krakoa. Over on Screen Rant, former CBH writer Thomas Bacon theorizes the X-Men may have gone to war with Professor X when they realized his plan. The idea that they sensed the real truth of Krakoa opposed the Professor and were brought back in more controllable circumstances. While I'm generally a little weary of Professor X is the bad guy takes, this one has something to it. Again, Jean Grey's behavior in X-Men Red runs expressly counter to the stated aims of Krakoa. I remain skeptical of the heel turn by Charles Xavier. It simply feels too telegraphed to actually be part of the grand plan, but I won't pretend it's not a question worth asking. It could be a little bit both ways. A few other strange but intriguing threads from Uncanny X-Men. Extending from the Rosenberg-written New Mutants Dead Souls, the surviving New Mutants enter the run, with Warlock spreading out his transmode virus across their team. Dark Beast cures them all of this, leaving some questions about the actual end state of Warlock. A Madrick dupe hosting Warlock discovers the use of Warlock's Sentinels in the X-Men's final confrontation in the run, which could imply making Warlock closer to Hull, but I won't pretend to have a perfect read on this, not by a long shot. The next time we see Warlock, we don't really see him, but he's merged with Doug Ramsey, who was himself last seen in the pages of the Charles Soule written Daredevil literally unable to access the internet again without losing his sanity, but I won't go into that. Something happened in the six-month gap to bring Doug and Warlock together. And this has been kept purposely mysterious throughout the Dawn of X. I am very confident this is a story that will be told, especially given the fact that we got additional details in Giant Size Nightcrawler, which again, was really Giant Size Cypher, except I guess they didn't want to call it that for marketing reasons. A final note from the run. Dark Beast plays an important role, at least until Ileana transports his head into a wall, which has me wondering about the status of alternate reality mutants on Krakoa and in the Resurrection Protocols. Would someone like Dark Beast from the Age of Apocalypse timeline be welcome on Krakoa or queued up for resurrection? 
If he's not, the same should apply to Nate Gray and a host of others, including all the omniversal shenanigans that accompany the Captain Britain Corps and the developments in the pages of Excalibur. Same goes for oddball clones like Miss Sinister or Joseph, aka 90s Magneto, post-Fatal Attractions. What's their status on the Isle of Krakoa? Here's to an upcoming Exiles book that doesn't exist yet to answer these questions and more. Questions? Predictions? Well, one question that stands out to me here, what were Charles and Myra waiting for? Why go through this charade of decades of X-Men stories, including this six-month gap, and in Charlie's case, death after death, before launching Krakoa? I'm genuinely curious now. I don't... Uh, there's some details in Moira's journals, for example, that suggest they needed for the right time until Apocalypse was ready, but it's, you know, like, why now? Aside from just, well, Jonathan Hickman ended Secret Wars in 2015, 2016, and, and of course all that editorial behind-the-scenes stuff that doesn't actually answer the question. I wonder if there's an in-universe explanation to that. I don't have a theory on this. I haven't thought it through. I'm just asking the question. Why launch Krakoa now? Next time, what would you like to see covered? I have the following topics queued up for coverage. Plenty of you have voted for mega-level mutants in the past, so that's still in consideration. I'm considering working through the original indie titles of Jonathan Hickman, things like Pax Romana, which is shockingly relevant, I think, to Powers of Ten. The retcon problem. What elements of X-Men history are hardest to reconcile with Hickman's vision? This is what I'm considering doing as we read through uh, all of Marvel Comics in My Marvel This Year Reading Club. Check out the My Marvel This Year podcast if you haven't already. We are currently up to 1985, in the reading club, uh, at least as far as my own reading, which means we're reading a lot of the Claremont era, and it's a very interesting time to be rereading classic 80s X-Men because you come into contact with all sorts of scenes and situations where Moira, Professor X, might be having a conversation, and now you look at it through the lens of house and power. So this type of topic would be looking at what are the ideas and themes and things that happen that just don't make sense <laughs> now that we know what the big picture game was for Charlie, Moira, and Magneto, and all of mutant kind. Again, thanks everybody for supporting me over on patreon.com slash comicbookherald, especially those of you in the mysterious benefactors tier. I would like to thank by name Eric Hodges, Jeff Zacharias, Ron Paul Kirkley, Jesse W., Slatron, Robert Mickelson, Professor Pride, and Steve Brennan for your support. If you want to find ways you can get cool little bonuses and uh, help me out, a great deal and and frankly give me an immense amount of encouragement going over to patreon.com slash comic herald and you can learn more there otherwise i'm dave i run comic book herald you can go to comicbookherald.com. you can find me at comic book herald pretty much anywhere social i would love it if you would check out the best comics ever in my marvelous year podcast and of course like and subscribe here to the youtube channel or podcast um which is just called comic book herald so thanks everybody for listening as always, I want to hear your thoughts, comments, feedback in the uh, in the comments here, and enjoy the comics.